l'horlogerie mécanique traditionnelle. Elle est à la croisée d'une façon And mechanics. Alors, je suis uh, Guillaume Sirex. I'm Guillaume Sirex, head of a department at the Manufacture Zenith, dedicated to technical development and the industrialization of watch movements. Donc, uh, Zenith, uh, and which actually has two technical bureaux, one dedicated to the watch exterior, mainly the watch case, et puis un dédié and another to movements. Given that Zenith manufactures all its movements from A to Z, the technical department naturally comprises an additional industrialization aspect that involves controlling the manufacturing processes to ensure they correspond to what we have developed upstream. Historically, Zenith is known as a movement producer and above all as a movement developer covering the entire range of complications. The Technical Bureau for Movements is in charge of a technical solution or of a horological complication through to the implementation of the different manufacturing processes of its components, as well as ensuring the correct assembly principles, the different operating models, testing methods and adjustments required to achieve a complete movement and guarantee its timekeeping precision. The El Primero 2 project, above all, consisted in identifying the true product DNA of the El Primero 1, of pinpointing exactly what had shaped the watch industry legend that the 1969 El Primero has become. The idea was to preserve its extremely powerful characteristics and to enrich them with technical enhancements, which I would not refer to as corrections, made possible by modern technologies. The evolution of materials, development methods, as well as production means, that make it possible to create shapes that simply could not have been made in 1969. The idea was also to offer a more modular version of the product. Back in 1969, there was a first set of specifications, and no particular thought was given to all the incredible variations and additions that have been made over the past 50 years. The idea of version 2 was to try and include as much potential for future evolution as possible, right from this design phase. Taking the barrel springs as an example, certain limits have been reached in 1969 in terms of the shapes that could be given to the barrel spring. And this, in turn, naturally limited the movement's power reserve. Today, we can create shapes that serve to increase the power reserve within the same barrel volume, which shows what can be done with the evolution of materials and techniques. The El Primero 50th anniversary box set contains three models. One of them is an El Primero 3600, meaning an El Primero 2 movement in a new edition of the Chronomat. These are thus the first 50 watches with the new 3600 movement. This version of the movement will be capable of timing tenths of a second, meaning that the central hand will circle the dial in 10 seconds and display tenths of a second. As an engineer here, you have the pleasure of being able to make a product that serves not only a purely technological purpose, but also an artistic function. And that's a really great feeling. When it came to exporting El Primero, now Zionist's cult movement for 50 years, to the United States, things were tough in the early days. 
the issue was a tax aimed at favoring U.S. national producers to the detriment of Swiss manufacturers. Watch jewels suddenly became political and were slapped with increasingly prohibitive tariffs. An urgent solution had to be found that would satisfy American consumers without impinging on Zenith's drive for excellent and unique expertise. In this new episode, we talk about subtle negotiations and hurdles to be cleared. You're listening to El Primero Stories, the movement podcast. History has repeatedly demonstrated how a country's protectionism can change the course of major events. Zenith is no exception to the rule. As the most attentive watch lovers will have noticed, the El Primero movements of the first model sold from 1969 onwards in the United States do not have the same number of jewels as the versions sold everywhere else in the world. At the time, a movement distributed in Europe was made with 31 jewels, whereas the version marketed in the United States contained only 17. To find the justification behind this difference, we must journey back in time to 1897. In the United States, imports, and especially those related to watchmaking, had thus far been uniformly taxed at a rate of 25%. While this tariff was undeniably high, the current protectionist concern was pushing the U.S. government to favor domestic industrial products. Despite this tax, however, many watches were imported from Switzerland and undeniably competing with models from American manufacturers. The bosses of the latter were thus putting pressure on the American government to raise tariffs on watch imports, and for once, American trade unions were fighting in the same direction. This was not to protect top management, but rather because they believed that, unlike in the United States, watches made in Switzerland were not manufactured in factories housing all the workers involved in production under the same roof. They saw them as models made by workers who often work from home and are therefore not union members. This was intolerable to them. They were therefore reluctant to accept the competition between these products and those of their own companies, considering that accepting these watches without applying a special tax to them would weaken the all-powerful trade unions. It must be said that the major Swiss firms were very active in the American market, where, through agents often based in New York, they advertised in modern ways like their American competitors. This included presenting generously jeweled watches, an area where American firms thought they had established their supremacy. And Swiss manufacturers were even striving to make their watches look like American watches, choosing to deliver them with movements that are not gilded, but rhodium-plated instead, as widely preferred by American consumers. Under pressure from trade unions and brand owners, the decision was thus taken to apply a flat-rate tax from 1897 onwards. This amounted to 73 cents for 7 jewels and $1.25 for 17. A dissuasive threshold was also implemented, in that beyond that number, the tax increases to $3. This measure was then reinforced several times with additional tariffs, or an increase in existing ones. In 1909, new taxes were added to this range of measures.
This was enough to cause a severe blow to Swiss competition, whose watches were also obliged to be marked Swiss-made or Swiss on the dials, so that consumers did not confuse products with watches offered by American companies. These taxes forced Swiss manufacturers to downgrade, for example, reduce the number of jewels, on movements exported to the United States, and then to have the watches fitted on U.S. soil so as to limit the tax burden. With constraints on imported watches becoming increasingly severe, Swiss firms were forced to seek solutions to ensure that retail prices were not overly impacted by these specific costs. The big companies thus designed variations of their movements exported to the American market, reducing the number of jewels used in the manufacture of these versions to 17, compared with far higher figures for other markets. The missing jewels were replaced either by brass plugs or by conventional drilling of the plates. This affected all firms and ended up creating a duly adjusted American quality. Meanwhile, in their advertising, American watch manufacturers flaunted the superiority of movements with 21 or 23 jewels. The few Swiss watches available in this range of chronometers were cased up in the United States and their prices were obviously higher all of which would lead the Swiss watchmaker to adopt an American version. Unthinkable? Think again. In 1969, Zenith was integrated into a consortium with Movado in particular, which was given the task of distributing models equipped with the El Primero movement in the United States. These were either identical to those in the Zenith collection, or models signed Movado and renamed Datron HS360. The El Primero movements equipping these watches were strictly identical to those used in Europe, apart from this difference with regard to jeweling. The American market was not at the time open to Zenith, yet the manufacturer in Le Locle did produce both types of movements simultaneously. The question is often raised as to whether the 17-joule version is more fragile than the 31-joule counterpart. Experience does not prove this, however, since the escapement is the same, and it is essentially this part that might have suffered from reduced jeweling. As for the rest of the movement, careful and regular lubrication can partially compensate for the reduction in the number of jewels. Undoubtedly, a normally jeweled version is more reassuring with regard to the wear of the parts. The hardness of the jewel does indeed slow down the consequences of friction involving the parts of the bridges and plates in contact with the arbors of the moving components. However, 17-joule models achieve perfectly satisfactory long-term performance and have performed well over time, although this does not mean that the 14 missing jewels are pointless. Today, there's only one El Primero movement production for all markets. The reduction in the number of jewels is a thing of the past. Nonetheless, until the late 1970s, this twin-stream manufacturing process continued and demonstrated the merciless competition between Swiss and American manufacturers. In retrospect, regulatory restrictions have not changed the course of history, and many American firms have disappeared since 1969. Watches with a contemporary El Primero movement still work as well on both sides of the Atlantic demonstrating that this avant-garde chronograph movement was capable of exceptional prowess, even when deprived of some of its jewels, an indication supported by the fact that collectors like both versions just as much. 
Thank you very much to all of you for listening to this El Primero Movement story, a podcast which has been dedicated to movement excellence. My name is Julien Tornard and I'm the CEO of Zenit. Like you, we are all sharing passion about watches, passion about watchmaking, and I think all these stories that you've been listening to are basically great examples of sharing this fantastic passion. We have been celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of one of the most, if not the most important movement in the watch industry, called the El Primero, a legendary movement created in 1969. All over the year, we've been around the world to celebrate this movement with different friends and aficionados of our brand and sharing this passion. So I'm very happy that you could hear all these interesting stories about the brand, including Charles Vermeer's story, which is a man I want to celebrate, especially this year for this anniversary. I'm also looking forward to being with you in the next episode and to share more adventures about watchmaking and about El Primero. Thank you.